Welcome to the State General Register podcast. I'm Jason Neville. I'm the education reporter at the State General Register. Uh, this week, uh, we have a, a different guest, uh, Rochester Superintendent uh, Tom Bertrand. Uh, we're going to talk uh, about state funding issues today. We're also going to talk a little bit about state testing and, uh, or excuse me, standardized testing. Uh, and then we'll, we'll learn a little bit more about the Ro- Rochester School District and some of the unique uh, features that it has. So, Tom, welcome to the State General Ro- Re- Register podcast. I'm really glad that you could be here. Yeah, thanks, Jason. Thanks, you, Thank you for having me. So let's start with sort of what's ev- what's on everybody's mind, this issue with uh, state funding and Senate Bill 1 and uh, the governor's a mandatory veto. Have you had any time to sort of digest and sort of figure out, everybody? what everybody else is trying to figure out is sort of what does the governor's a mandatory veto mean for your school district? Well, the a mandatory veto effectively removes about 80% of the elements of Senate Bill 1. So I think... I think what's happening now is some posturing. The uh, governor's response to Senate Bill 1 clearly sent a message that there's more discussion that needs to go on. Um, you know, some have half-jokingly used the phrase, show them death and they will accept pain, and perhaps that's what's going on here. I don't really want to speculate so much about that, but uh, clearly the the, the mandatory veto to Senate Bill 1 uh, decimates elements of Senate Bill 1, whether you're for it or against it, it clearly uh, represents a dramatic change. And uh, so whether or not there are votes there to override, we'll see. Uh, things will come to a head here soon, I would expect, by the end of the month. Sort of the big one of the big changes, in addition, obviously, to the Chicago money uh, that the governor talks so much about, uh, there was another provision in there regarding TIF districts and uh, prop, prop tax-capped uh, districts, just like Sangamon County is, which obviously Rochester is in Sangamon County. Have you been able to – there was recently a TIF district last year passed in Rochester. Any ideas sort of what the governor's changes would mean for Rochester now that you guys do have a TIF district? We don't know in dollars. What we do know is that the amendatory veto would effectively put property that's currently – excluded from your state aid calculation back into your state aid calculation. In other words, there's there's an inverse relationship between local property wealth and state aid. The wealthier you are in terms of property, the less state aid you get. And historically, property that's been placed in a TIF district, or that is tax-capped, or tax-capped districts, Property has been excluded from your state aid calculation, but the amendatory veto would actually put it back in. It's what we call the double whammy. Local schools would be losing tax revenue that is now going into a TIF, and also the property in a TIF would be counted against that district's general state aid. So we call that the double whammy. Mm-hmm. And there was some prospect of uh, the Illinois State Board of Education releasing some numbers, but we found out yesterday kind of in a weird sort of twist that apparently there was some bad data that they received. So now you have to wait longer. Uh, what does this sort of, how hard is it for you to, you know, continue to have to wait and wait to sort of figure out what's going on? What sort of pressure does that put on school Well, it, it does put a lot of pressure on schools because we have to have a budget, a formal budget adopted by the board by the end of September. And that's pretty difficult to do right now. 
when, in our case, nearly 50% of your revenue comes from the state and you don't know if that's coming and if so, when. So it's really a struggle right now to try to put together a final budget. Uh, what you don't want to do is overestimate your revenue and then find out three months from now we still don't have, if we still don't have a school funding bill, that uh, your state funding is going to be 25% less than what you anticipated. So it's a real challenge right now to try to, to put a budget together. And, you know, the bottom line is our primary responsibility is to get kids back in school and to educate them and do everything we can. So that's what we'll do. We'll, we'll, we'll keep the doors open as long as we can. Uh, and as creatively as we can do it. Tomorrow is uh, August 10th. Uh, that is supposed to be sort of the day that je- for the first round of general right. state aid payments start to go out. Uh, I think it's probably safe to say that they won't be going out tomorrow, given <laughs> all uh, where things stand at the moment. How many general state aid payments could the Rochester S- School District miss and still keep the doors open? Well... It's hard to say definitively, but what we do know is nearly one half of our revenue comes from local property taxes, and that revenue, 90% of it has already, well, I shouldn't say 90%, 90% of the first payments of property taxes we have already received, and the rest will come in in September. So we're fortunate in that that local property tax revenue flows in, which would allow us to use all of that before... Uh, really hitting the wall. Other factors are whether a district has fund balances, whether they receive federal funds. So it's hard to say definitively how long we could go without state aid, but I feel pretty confident we could get through the first semester. But that's having exhausted everything that Mm -hmm. we have, which that's a scary prospect for school districts too, that you have no reserves whatsoever should that scenario develop. Yeah, I was at a Springfield School Board meeting on Monday night, and I was just curious if, if the Rochester School District does this. They, the Springfield School District, for a number of years, has always taken out a line of credit. Uh, as you know, the, the property tax bills come in only at certain sure. points of the years and sort of to get through the downtimes, they have a line of credit to be able to meet payroll. Does the Ro- Rochester School District do anything with, with, with a line of credit, or is that something you have to look at? If uh, We do not currently. Uh, I think a lot of districts will be looking at that. Mm -hmm. They will be looking at tax anticipation warrants. I think, I don't want to speak for District 186, but I think part of their challenge, too, is they get a significant amount of federal funds. Mm -hmm. So sometimes if those funds don't flow in as quickly as planned, it creates more stress on them, whereas we get 2% of our revenue from the federal funds. So it's a little different animal and they have a huge budget but we're fortunate that we have reserves um, that we could use but there's no doubt about it if november rolls around and state we don't have a funding bill yet school districts are going to really have to look at all sorts of uh, uncomfortable options to try to keep the doors open and that'll be lines of credit that'll be tax anticipation warrants which is effectively borrowing against next year's taxes which is not a good practice whatsoever it's like a payday loan okay. type situation uh categorical payments uh school districts you know for for a number of years now have not been receiving categorical payments on time i believe school districts correct me if i'm wrong received two of the four 
payments for this past school year? We got two for fiscal year 17 in 17, and then we also got one of the late 16 payments. So we got a total of three payments, but you're scheduled, normally you're supposed to get four payments for the current fiscal year. So we're still behind two payments. Right, and categorical payments, I, I should uh, clarify those and correct me if I'm wrong, again, they, they, they fund things like your transportation, right. your special education. Is there, is there some other stuff? Is, is school lunch considered categorical payments, too? Well, no, actually, that, school lunch, uh, the, most of that flows from the fed, feds, federal okay. government, but it's primarily special education and transportation cost, and uh, it's a s significant amount of the budget. Is categorical payments tied to this uh, uh, provision in... Uh, the spending bill about schools will not receive general state aid. Is categorical payments separate? Will <laughs> schools get categorical payments no matter what? Is that have you, have you looked at that? Well, it depends on, you know, Senate Bill 1 rolled some of those payments into the state, the new proposed new state mm -hmm. aid formula. Uh, so, yeah, lots of things are up in the air right now in terms of what happens if there is no bill. Would we still get categorical payments? We are still owed one from last or two from last year, so one would hope that those would still flow, and that may be a way to help districts out if there is no school funding bill, is to advance those two, or to make whole the districts for last year by getting those two payments to us as quickly as possible. But yeah, that's all up in limbo in terms of what ifs. If we have no funding bill, do the categoricals flow? Um, governor's veto does that mean categoricals or categoricals are in or out and then the whole chicago block grant is really about categoricals on their end so lots of things in flux right now i talked to darren root a little bit a couple of weeks ago and we sort of we had a conversation about superintendents now entering more of a political stage maybe than they had before um, superintendents are being asked to come to the state house and testify and speak at events. Uh, you've, you, you've done some of that yourself. Is that something that you're uh, comfortable doing, uh, sort of stepping and becoming a little bit more, doing more political advocacy, I guess you could call it? I'm, I'm certainly comfortable advocating for adequate and equitable funding of schools and advocating for our school children. I think you do have to be careful as a superintendent to be apolitical. That, and Senate Bill 1 is a perfect example of that. You know, you, you will be asked to advocate for it or against it. And at the end of the day, I am for adequate funding of public schools and equitable distribution of those funds so that the children who live in areas that are most in need get more of the additional funding that goes to public education. It just so happens that Senate Bill 1 is the only bill that has passed both houses. And so are you for it? Yes. In a word, yes. But if you put another bill on the table that does the same thing or similar, I'll be for that too. Because at the end of the day, it's about equity and adequacy. I think what's happening now is we're, uh, you know, outside parties are, are sometimes trying to thrust us in the middle of these really contentious political issues and school funding is front and center. And so they're we're being, uh, I think, in some cases, prodded to take political positions, and I strongly advise superintendents not to, not to do that, to just stay apolitical. And we're about kids in school, and we need to be in school, and we need fair and equitable funding and adequate funding. And so we'll support any bill that advances that cause. I mean, that's the bottom line.
have you been able to kind of wrap your mind around sort of where Governor sort of Bruce Browner, what her support is on public education? Uh, you know, on one on one hand, he makes he has made a lot of comments about uh, how he supports education. He wants schools to open, but he's also been critical of teachers unions. Some could say this, you know, the amendatory veto really messes, <laughs> really kind of messes things up. There was a commission formed by the governor. Uh, and there was a lot of talks about what this bill would be, and then all of a sudden <laughs> they got a bill, and then you gutted the sort of gutted it. Where, where do you, what's your sort of take on the governor and sort of where he stands on his support of edu- education? Well, I think certainly he uh, has spoken loud and and clearly about the need for more funding for K twelve schools. I think he's also been very clear about his position on unions, and there's no disputing that. Um, certainly some of the rhetoric surrounding the amendatory veto is of concern about public education, and when you're talking about scholarships, using public funds for scholarships to send children to private schools, that certainly gets the attention of, of public school superintendents when we have public schools that are not being adequately funded. That's a concern. So, um, you know, we also, I also recognize I've been around a long time and I recognize that things are really at an emotional high right now at the Capitol. Everyone's frustrated. We're frustrated in the field. Elected officials are hearing from everybody about funding and budgets and tensions are just running really high. The rhetoric gets ramped up. And so hopefully cooler heads will prevail and, and uh, they'll work together for the betterment of our state. Let's switch uh, subjects. We, <laughs> we could we could kind of talk all day about state funding, but I'm not. There's still so many what ifs right yes. now. I think that's sort of the bottom line. Uh, I was covering a Springfield uh, school board meeting on Monday, and if you saw in uh, Tuesday's State Journal Register, uh, one of the school board members, uh, Mike Zimmer, is a former uh, longtime principal in the Springfield school district and administrator. He uh, there was a presentation in regards to uh, changing assessments in the Springfield School District. And it's sort of opened up a bigger conversation. And that's sort of what I would like uh, to have questions to you about in regards to uh, standardized testing. Uh, Mike mentioned, you know, I think he made, he made the joke that in the, in the early 19th century when he was going to uh, school that they didn't have <laughs> as many standardized tests as they do today. And he and uh, a lot of his uh, peers turned out just fine. Can you sort of give a little bit of a, a background on how we got to this point in regards to standardized testing? And may, maybe sort of the question is, too, is why do schools sort of have to do so many tests? I think the testing movement really gained momentum in the early 2000s, and I think in part um, related to uh, the perception of underperforming public schools, mainly in large urban districts who are dealing with some really challenging, or districts that are dealing with some really challenging situations. But I think also it was kind of a an outcome of with more funding comes demands for more accountability. And so I think that's where it really gained momentum was what are we getting on our return on investment, this whole principle of return on investment. 
And I get that. I understand that accountability is important, that we all are accountable. I think what has happened is we continue to lay layer upon layer of assessments on our schools. And I'm not, I don't believe that's a healthy situation for school children. You know, the, the economy that we're preparing our students for is not an economy that's going to demand excellent test scores. It's, mm-hmm. it's an economy that's going to demand uh, children and, and workers who are flexible who are problem solvers, critical thinkers, uh, communicators, adaptable. Um, and so I, th- I don't know how much you measure that through standardized testing. And uh, so I think that's the concern. There has to be a balance. I understand the purpose of, of some of these assessments at the state and federal level is accountability, that to make sure that our public schools are doing the, you know, the important job of educating kids and not just getting more money and not producing Results. I understand that, but I, I think we, the you know, the pendulum has swung too far that way. Uh, continuing on our conversation on on standardized testing, this is uh, Rochester Superintendent uh, Tom Bertrand. Uh, we've talked in the past about uh, we don't need to spell out. We'll just go with the acronym of PARC. Right. Uh, we we had a debate last night on Monday. <laughs> Do I need to spell out PARC anymore? I don't because I, I don't think, think anybody so. actually. I've never heard anybody actually say the whole partnerships of, I, I think I don't even know I can say it right now. Uh, you've been critical uh, of that exam sort of in the past. What are some of your uh, top sort of issues uh, with PARC? I think starting back before PARC was even adopted, one of the concerns out in the field was the amount of standardized testing that schools are already doing. And there was no effort made to determine how much of that is going on and what assessment schools are already giving. So, uh, for example, in our district, <clears throat> excuse me, in our district, you know, we're doing regular progress monitoring of all of our students, particularly in grades K through 6, with nationally normed assessments to determine their progress. And in fact, teachers are using that data to inform instruction and to provide interventions for children who aren't meeting standards. So I didn't really see the need for another layer of assessment at the state level, other than if the state needed to show accountability to the public for tax dollars that are being spent in schools. So ultimately, in my opinion, the purpose of an assessment is to inform instruction. Um, to determine and to diagnose what's going on with the child's reading or math, and then for a teacher to pivot instruction, to change instruction to meet the needs of the child. And the other, which leads to another concern with PARC, which is it really doesn't provide meaningful data to teachers in the classroom that helps them better educate kids, which is what we're about. Another concern relates to, and we've had this problem historically with any state assessment, is the time that it takes to get the results. You know, we get results in mid-July. That doesn't serve any purpose for the teacher in the classroom. And when PARC was first rolled out to public schools, there were supposed to be two testing periods to give you data to inform instruction, which is a primary purpose of assessment. And then that all went by the wayside. So it's a single assessment. Uh, The data doesn't come in in a timely manner. So it comes in in July and uh, doesn't really provide teachers the data they need in the classroom 
during the same school year to work with kids, like the assessment systems that so many schools already have. Um, so I think those are the biggest concerns. And, you know, it's always a challenge at the state board level, I think, to balance the concerns you're hearing from those in the field with the demands of accountability, you know, that you're hearing from legislators or the federal government. So, you know, the state board gets caught in the middle that they're trying to put an assessment system in place, and they're, and, but yet those in the field have a lot of questions and concerns about it. Do you think it's uh, accurate? Uh, one of the things the park does, it's percentage of students who met or exceeded standards. You look at those numbers and you look across the state and the percentages, I, I, don't, I don't have them off the top of my head, but I think what is it, maybe half or below half oh, yes, of students, yes. below really half right. of students mm-hmm. met or exceed or are college ready. Uh, I know this is a, a big complaint among uh, school administrators and school board members that Park in a way almost makes the students, I guess, look dumb <laughs> in a way that, that they're not, that they're not smart or, or capable. And I, I think a lot of teachers and uh, administrators who are in the buildings would say otherwise, and they have tests. Is that is that one of the complaints of Park? Is definitely, it, is that, it, it, it's sort of yeah. misguided. There's definitely another concern is what related to when they set up the score ranges and the and the the categories for those ranges that there were more that had negative connotation than positive. That it would skew the numbers and it make make it look like kids are performing worse than they really are. And, you know, that's always the case with any assessment, a statewide assessment. You, you don't want to demoralize the teachers and demoralize the kids. And, you know, that's the risk you run with these types of assessments where you're comparing schools, you're comparing children, you're comparing districts, uh, what some of us in the field call naming and shaming. Um, that doesn't produce better results. In fact, it can demoralize staff and it can demoralize students. We're all about and we're all for continuous improvement for every child. We should be accountable for that. Um, In our case, and in many cases across the state, districts already have local assessment systems. In our case, we use Ames Web at the lower level where we get that type of data and it's much better data that informs instruction and informs parents of how their children are doing. We report to parents three times a year on how their children are doing with that assessment. What parents have a hard time with is now my child also has to take the state assessment for a week and my child's crying because they're afraid they didn't do well on it. So uh, we've got to find a balance. Yeah, it's sort of interesting. Maybe this might be a little bit inside baseball, but I always, as a, as a newspaper uh, reporter, anytime test comes out, I, I sort of I, I've talked with superintendents enough to know uh, how they feel about park scores. Yet, th- that is the metric that the federal government right. uses. So I always feel weird, you know, when I put those scores in the paper. Uh, I, you know, I try to sometimes put qualifiers in there, sure. et cetera. But I wonder, you know, you mentioned, you know, morale of teachers and I, maybe, you know, the media and how we report sources might be part of the problem because they're going to see those stories. But I, is there any better way that we could share information, you know, with the public? I guess maybe I'm asking you what, what you think would be a good way for the media when, when uh, this data gets released of, uh, of how to report it and sort of so people can have a better uh, idea of how their school districts are performing? Well, I think a couple of things can be done. One, a test score is a single measurement on a single day of how a child is doing. 
So there are other metrics that could be used to determine how kids are doing. And uh, the other thing, for example, at the high school level in our case, how many of our students are earning dual credits through Lincoln Land Community College would be an important piece of information, I think, uh, for parents and community members to know because that's another indicator of, of how students are doing. I think the, the biggest uh, concern I have with comparing districts is when you compare two districts that aren't at all similar. Mm -hmm. And you're comparing test scores of districts that are not at all similar. So if you take districts that are similar in makeup, similar demographics, and compare them, at least you're comparing like districts as opposed to districts that may not have a lot in common. And even in Sangamon County, we have great, uh, great uh, um, variance in the school district and the composition of the school districts, the demographics of the student population, the percentage of low-income students and minority students. And so I think you just have to use caution when you're comparing two unlike districts. Let's switch a little bit and talk a little about Rochester School District. When is the first day of school uh, for, for your district? Teachers report on the 21st and students on the 23rd students on the of 20th. August. Uh, you know, I, I was kind of curious uh, if we could talk a little bit. It always feels like, you know, Rochester uh, has a great reputation as, as a good school district. I was wondering, you've been, you've been in the district, what, for t over 20 years now? 26 years. 20, 26 years mm -hmm. now. I, I was wondering if you could, uh, has Rochester always sort of had that reputation? It always feels like Chatham, Rochester, and Sherman uh, always have great reputations. Has, has it always been that way uh, for Rochester, or is the has it sort of changed maybe in the past decade or so? You know, I think it's been there as long as I've been around, and even before that time. And I can recall when I moved to Rochester, my oldest son, who's now 29, uh, was in preschool, and that was a big part of the reason why I took the job as the high school principal in Rochester was because of the reputation of the school district. It was a good place to raise our family. And in our case, it's a really a kind of a unique dynamic in Rochester where the schools are truly the hub of the community. There's not a large commercial base. People move there so their children can attend school there. And I think in part because of that dynamic, parents are really engaged with the schools. Um, their children come to school generally ready to learn. And uh, it's a good place to be and strong community support going back well before my time in the district. And they've had a lot of stability at the top. You know, I, I share that uh, occasionally with people that I'm only the fifth superintendent since 1936. We've had long, st stable leadership um, at the superintendent's level, in the buildings, and even at the Board of Education level, there's been a lot of stability. And I think there's a lot to be said for that, that with that stability, I think it's kind of a calming influence over us, you know, over a system. I was a graduate of, of the Ball Chatham School District, and we were talking a little bit before we uh, went on air. I guess I don't. I guess on air. I don't know if that's the right word for <laughs> podcasting. Uh, but I was uh, I was involved in uh, the uh, the broadcasting program out there, and I sort of look back at my time, and that was that program was sort of a launching pad for me into uh, my career, and it was what I was most enthusiastic about in school. I worked the hardest at it, and it was a program that was unique to Chatham. I wouldn't have necessarily had the same opportunity if I went to an, a different school district. Is there anything similar in Rochester, unique programs, classes, 
teachers with special experience that you have that sort of differentiates yourself maybe from some other school districts? And I'm putting you a little bit on the sure. spot here. but I think a couple of things. One, the district has always been perceived to be what I call a destination district for staff members in that a lot of staff who come to us stay. And so that provides a level of commitment and dedication and longevity to your staff, people who are really committed to the schools and to the students of the schools. And so I think that makes a big difference in the experience that kids have. In terms of programs, you know, we have a lot of programs that are maybe uh, replicated elsewhere with one-to-one program with Chromebooks and with um, dual credit options at the high school and we put Wi-Fi on school buses in recent years to kind of expand connectivity opportunities for kids. But most recently, one of the programs that I'm really proud of, and it's not even a school-based program, it's more community-based, are some of the STEM opportunities that we're offering kids in our community. And it's being facilitated in large part by a community member, Pete Geegan. Uh, we've started uh, junior robotics clubs. We've got Lego leagues, all sorts of STEM engagement with young students early to get them involved in in that area, which I think is an area that's going to grow exponentially in in public schools as the demand for high tech workers continues to continues to grow. So that's something. And then we've kind of dovetailed off of that. We've uh, it's pretty cool in the lower elementary school. We have Dot and Dash that are robots that we have children as early as kindergarten learning to program and to code. And we had third graders come to a board meeting last year and demonstrate how they had coded to operate Dot and Dash, these two robots. And uh, so it's amazing what what's now available in terms of opportunities for kids. So. I think that area of STEM opportunities and robotics will be an area that will continue to grow in our district. Last question. Uh, the football team now is what? Is it four or five? Six. Six state titles. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> how much does having a good football team, in a way, that is almost a draw. I imagine you have families who relocate to, to Rochester uh, so they're son could, could play, you know, wide receiver on the football sure. team. Has there been some sort of, uh, what, what kind of things has having the successful football program sort of changed the district? I think not just in terms of football, but certainly, you know, the football program has had unprecedented historic success here in the last seven years, winning six state titles. And certainly that's a drawing card, but I think that's the case with any program. We've always had, even before my time, a long tradition of excellent fine arts. And so folks who move into the community with a child that are that's really interested in the fine arts, they know there's been a long tradition of excellence there and strong community support. So I, I think it's anytime you have a successful program that is high profile, that's going to attract people. Well, that does it uh, for the State General Register. Thank you, Tom, for coming on and uh, uh, talking a little bit. Uh, we'll be uh, continue to look out for the State General Register. I know other reporters here are doing uh, podcasts on, on various topics. A lot of it will be around state government, but uh, we've had stuff about the state fair uh, that's coming up. I know I'm looking forward to it. I've got a daughter who turns two, two next month, so it's uh, shooting a lot of new life into the state fair. So I'm actually really excited to go this year. 
so we'll be back. Uh, as I said uh, last uh, podcast, we're going to have a superintendents, some uh, different people who are involved in education sort of on the podcast and sort of offer different perspectives. So thank you uh, for listening, and thanks again, Tom. Thank you. Thank you.